0: All right, thank you for those that uh, were leading us this morning. Thank you to those who share their testimonies with us. We think that that testimonies are uh, about us, but really they're about Jesus. And that's why they're just so so fun to hear and listen to. And uh, Doug, we love you. Uh, Lots of people here know you well, and they know of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So um, that's obvious. Turn to Mark 12. Mark chapter 12. I had a thought this week. Uh, What would our 24-hour news cycle talk about? So, you know, CNN and Fox News and MSNBC, all those. Where would they be if they couldn't talk about politics and religion? They wouldn't have anything to talk about, would they? There's such passion and sizzle and interest in these two subjects. The, The news channels would have nothing compelling to report if they avoided politics and religion, besides maybe weather, right? And somehow weather's been pulled into politics uh, these days as well. So you have these two volatile subjects, and they are volatile in isolation, but the two subjects manage to intersect, and they intersect a lot. All sorts of issues in our day have politics and religion overlapping, which It makes sense when you think about it. America itself was founded because of the collision of politics and religion. But in our day, whether it be the finer points of the Affordable Care Act, the debate about abortion, protecting the unborn, civil ordinances that seek to limit the freedoms of churches or faith groups, maybe it's just war theory, or a hundred of other issues... Politics and religion collide. Sometimes they violently collide in our culture. And it's at that point where they collide where many sincere believers are beginning to ask questions. Questions like, what is a Christian's responsibility to the state? What are we supposed to do when our allegiance to God conflicts with our allegiance to government? Can I be a good citizen and be a faithful Christian? And these are not mere academic questions. These are questions that directly touch the lives of many, many believers today and will likely continue to affect us in the days ahead. In our text for this morning, the question of a Christian's allegiance to both God and government is brought to Jesus Christ. And as we come to this, let me just say this. This is why I love teaching expositionally. This is why I love teaching through entire books of the Bible because this is a subject I would probably not seek out. In fact, I might avoid politics and religion, and you'd probably think me wise to avoid politics and religion. But because we want to be faithful to our study of Mark's gospel and faithful to all that Scripture teaches, we get to tackle politics and religion today. So as you turn to Mark 12... Let me remind you that we're about three fourths of the way through the Gospel of Mark. We're in the final week of Jesus. We've been studying this book for about 13 months. Now we are in Jesus' final week. And what we've been seeing in our last few studies is that that this story is about to culminate. So if Mark's Gospel had a soundtrack, that music would be getting more and more intense. Jesus has entered Jerusalem, He's entered the temple, He's turned over the tables in the temple, and at the midweek mark, he's occupying the temple. The temple's his. He's teaching in its courts. He's proclaiming the truth of the gospel to all who have ears to hear. This chapter began, chapter 12 began with a, a parable that Jesus told about a man who owned a vineyard. He owned a vineyard, and he rented it out to tenant farmers. these farmers to care for and even benefit from. And when harvest time was due, the vineyard owner sent a series of slaves back to the vineyard, back to the farmers, to collect the fruit. And you remember, the tenants, they brutalized the slaves. They crushed the head of one, they killed the others. Every slave the owner sent, the tenants maimed or murdered or mistreated. Finally, The owner of the vineyard doesn't send an army. He sends his son. And the wicked tenants kill his son. And through the dramatic telling of that parable, what Jesus is doing is he's recounting the history of Israel. Israel is the vineyard of God. God assigned that vineyard to stewards who were to care for it, religious leaders, these stewards who were the caretakers of Israel. What did they do? Well, all along the way, they ignored, shunned, even killed the prophets. Basically, everyone that God sent to them, they rebelled against, from Moses to John the Baptist. Now, they want to kill the son. And everybody who was standing around listening to Jesus tell this parable They know exactly what the story means. They get it. They know, they all know that he's referring to the wicked leadership of Israel. They know the leaders have hatred toward Jesus. They know they want to kill him. And the leaders themselves, they know that they've been exposed. That's what verse 12 says. They understood that he spoke this parable against them, so they left and they went away. I said last week the name for this delegation of leaders in opposition to Jesus is the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of 70 men, plus the high priest, and the Sanhedrin, they ruled religious life in Israel. The Sanhedrin would have been made up of really three primary groups of people. The scribes. The scribes were the experts in the law. They were the scholars and the teachers of the day. Uh, Included also in the Sanhedrin would be some prominent Pharisees, The Pharisees were the theological conservatives in Israel. They were the fundamentalists, you might say. And then also some Sadducees. That might be a word you're familiar with if you've read much of the Gospels. They were the theological liberals of the day. They let a lot of Greek thinking, Hellenist thinking into their theology. And those three groups primarily would have made up the Sanhedrin. You might have some of the chief priests and some of the tribal elders as well. But the 70 men plus the high priest, that's the Sanhedrin. And as we work our way through the 12th chapter of Mark, you'll see Jesus is going to be directly confronted by each of these political religious groups. Starting here with the Pharisees, then the Sadducees, then the scribes, they're all going to examine him. And their goal is to trap him. In their own way, trap him. With their own pet issues, they want to trap him because they want to destroy him. So let's look at how it unfolds in our text for today. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes, And they, they being the Sanhedrin, they sent to him, to Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's, and they marveled at him. This is God's word. Over the course of our study, I have mentioned several times that Mark's initial recipients of this gospel are Romans. Romans. Roman Christians. Christians about 20 to 25 years removed from the time of Jesus. Therefore, they lived in the midst of the reign of the Roman emperor Nero. That's an important fact. And many times I've described the diabolical attitude that Nero had toward Christians in Rome. He sort of killed them for fun, for sport, for entertainment, He would impale them on long poles, he would crucify them in mass, he would sick wild beasts upon them in the Colosseum, he would put animal skins on himself and pretend to be a wild beast and attack them like a raving madman. He even blamed his attempt to burn Rome to the ground on the Christians. And he did that so that the populace of Rome would then turn against these believers in Christ. So, as Mark writes these words from Jesus about paying taxes to Rome, you have these Christians in Rome sitting under maybe the beginnings of neurotic persecution, and they would be the first to read these words. This is the same group who would first read Paul's letter to the church at Rome, the letter of Romans. And in that letter, chapter 13 of the book of Romans, Paul writes these words that, in many ways, mirror the answer of Jesus that I just read. Paul says, "'Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to do good, to, to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority?' For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. So Paul and Jesus have the same view. They say the same thing. Love God, pay your taxes. It's March March 1st, right? You've got 45 days to love God and pay your taxes. Some of you are way ahead of me. You've already done that and got your money back. Illustration. There's a man named Justin. Justin lived in the middle of the second century. And Justin wrote a famous apology or defense of Christianity in which he countered a frequently made accusation that Christians were disloyal to the state, that they made bad citizens. Justin said no. He said that the truth was the very opposite of what was being alleged. He said that there are not more obedient, loyal, hardworking, productive citizens in all the empire than the Christians. These are the people, he said, who of all the people in the world live peaceable lives and can be counted on to obey the laws. He went on to say that Christians always pay their taxes with exemplary faithfulness, which was something that could not be said of the ordinary citizens in the day. The empire, Justin said, would run far more smoothly if there were more Christians, not less. As it happened, it was not long afterward that Justin himself was dragged into a Roman law court and there he was being accused of being a Christian. His accuser was apparently a rival teacher of philosophy who, was, who, who had become jealous of Justin's popularity and success. And so Justin, along with six other Christians, apparently disciples of Justin, they appeared with him in the dock. The judge was looking to find them guilty So the judge commanded the accused, commanded them to sacrifice to the state gods. They refused to do it. He asked each man in turn if he were a Christian. Each acknowledged that he was. Most, if not all of them, had been taught the Christian faith by Justin. They were not all clever, but none of them wavered. They were then threatened with flogging and with execution Jeering, the judge asked Justin if he thought that he would ascend into heaven. I don't think so, Justin replied. I'm fully convinced of it. And after one last but equally fruitless attempt to get them to offer sacrifice to the Roman gods, the judge condemned them all to death by beheading. And so it was that Justin received the name by which he has been known throughout history, Justin Martyr. And isn't it interesting and isn't it revealing and important that Justin's loyalty, in his loyalty to the government, he paid his taxes to the same government that murdered him. He paid his taxes that built the temples for state gods, that, that paid the craftsmen to build the idols that he and his six friends were commanded to worship, but they did not. When at the end of his trial, the judge threatened Justin, saying, "'Unless you obey my commands, you will suffer tortures without mercy,' Justin replied, "'We desire nothing more than to suffer for our Lord Jesus Christ, for this gives us salvation and joy before his dreadful judgment seat at which all the world must appear.'" Justin paid his taxes and gave his life for the same reason. He wished to serve and please the Lord. We pay our taxes, we obey the laws, Because that obedience pleases the Lord. And we do this until the moment when the state commands us to do what God forbids or forbids us to do what God commands. And at that point, we make our loyalty clear and we bear the consequences no matter what they are. So with that long introduction... Let's get into this morning's very brief outline. We have a question about taxes. That's my first point, corresponding with the first half of the text. And then the second point, an answer to the taxing question, corresponding to the second half of the text, a question about taxes. The first thing you notice when reading this passage are those who have made an alliance to get Jesus. This is a most awkward alliance. Verse 13 tells us it's the Pharisees and the Herodians. As I said, the Pharisees were the religious conservatives of the day. The Old Testament doesn't speak of the Pharisees because the group was born during the intertestamental period, so between Malachi and the time of Jesus. You have this recovery of nationalism in Israel with with Judas Maccabeus and the overthrow of the Seleucids, the Greek Empire, and so the Pharisees, this intensely religious group that loves Israel, There would have been about 6,000 Pharisees in Israel during the first century. Again, they were legalistic. They tried to keep every letter of the law perfectly. That's why they came up with all of their own laws and all their own traditions, because if they could keep those, then that means they would keep the law. We see them in the Gospels as this sort of sin police. You know, they're taking note of every little thing they think Jesus is doing wrong. And because of their approach to the law, These men were marked out by pride and self-righteousness. Their religious life was almost entirely external. They had no real relationship with God. This is why Jesus repeatedly condemns them. He calls them whitewashed tombs, meaning they look pure on the outside, but they are dead on the inside. The Pharisees were very nationalistic, again, in their political views. They loved Israel. They hated being under Roman rule. They wanted to be free from it all. So that's the Pharisees. The Herodians, they weren't very religious at all. They they were almost entirely political. The Herodians got their name because of their connection to the family of Herod. The family of Herod had governed the region for decades. Herod the Great had died in 6 AD, and he he had his land divided between his three sons. And Herod's sons, they they had some power, but they really didn't have absolute power. They had no real authority. They were on the, the leash of Rome. And because they were on the leash of Rome, the Herodians were very loyal to Rome. Because the more loyal they would be to Rome, the more Rome would allow them to rule. The more tax money would come their way. The more palaces they could then build. The Herodians did have some Jewish ancestry, but their loyalty was not with the Jews. Their loyalty was to the empire. So the Herodians and the Pharisees, they're coming together. These two groups are actually bitter enemies. They don't like each other. And it's not like a divide that we see today. This isn't Republicans and Democrats. This is like the KKK and the ACLU coming together. Right? This is Greenpeace and Halliburton, OU, Texas, whatever your favorite metaphor is. That's the bitterness between these two groups. And they've, they, they've found this cause to unite over, which is taking down Jesus. The Pharisees wanted to get rid of Jesus because of his theology. But the Romans didn't care about their folksy religion. They, they weren't going to kill Jesus for his theology. The only way the Romans would kill Jesus was for his political views. Enter the Herodians. They had to be involved in this situation because the goal of the Sanhedrin is to put Jesus in a position where he makes political statements that the Romans will read as open, overt rebellion. That's the plan. If they could get Jesus to sound like he was anti-Roman, anti-Caesar, the Herodians would make a straight line to the Roman authorities report Jesus, they would have cause to arrest him and maybe cause to kill him. Which is why verse 13 concludes by telling us their intent is to trap him. That word for trap is a hunting term. It's only used here in the New Testament. The opposition is literally hunting Jesus like you would hunt an animal. And they do this, as you read verse 14, they do this by way of flattery. You see some flattery here, almost a mocking kind of flattery. And people will do that, won't they? They'll they'll deliver all this flattery. They'll butter you up before they just sort of drop the hammer on you. That's what these men are doing. They come to Jesus and they call him master. Some of your versions say teacher. All throughout the book of Mark, we have Jesus referred to as teacher. That's what he was. He taught with this great authority. He could not shake the title of teacher. Teacher. And then they begin to share these compliments with Jesus. They're saying, man, teacher, we know that you are true, which means you're a man of integrity. For you're not the kind of man who can be manipulated, but you truly teach the way of God. Therefore, however you answer this question, man, you're you're locked in on it. That's what you believe. And everything they say there is 100% true, but they don't actually believe a word of it. This is nothing more than insincere flattery. It's it's designed to get Jesus to drop his guard, which that tactic might have worked with an ordinary man but not with the Lord Jesus. It's like Adelaide Stevenson once said, "Flattery is all right so long as you don't inhale." You know, Jesus was not about to inhale the flattery that they were delivering. He was not going to be swayed by their psychological games. He knew their motives. He could see the condition of their hearts. Verse 15 tells us very, very clearly, he knew their hypocrisy. He knew it. And that brings us to their question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Should we pay them or should we not? Notice how the Pharisees frame this question. They say, is it lawful? They're making this a theological discussion. Does it correspond to Old Testament law to pay taxes to Caesar? Is this allowed by God? They moved politics into religion. They couldn't help it. They couldn't help it because Rome was a tax-happy empire. The Roman Empire was built through taxation. At this time in Israel, there would have been three primary taxes levied against the Jews by Rome. First, there was a ground tax. It was a tax on land, and it consisted of taxing a tenth of all grain and a fifth of all wine and fruit. So if you were a grain farmer or a vineyard owner or, or had a fruit orchard, you were getting hit hard by the Romans with this ground tax. Then there was an income tax, which was 1% of a man's earnings. That's different from the ground tax. It's separated out from that operation. Just a simple 1% tax of whatever you made. And then, though, then there was a poll tax. And the poll tax applied to everyone. If you breathed in the empire, you paid the poll tax. The poll tax was the reason Mary and Joseph had to travel to Bethlehem to register. The Romans would count the heads of their subjects so they would know how much poll tax would come in each year. And the poll tax was one denarius a year, which was, the, which was a day's wage for a working man, one denarius. All of these taxes were collected by the publicans, those hated publicans, those tax collectors that the Jews considered the lowest of the low, these corrupt and merciless men who would overtax and, and take some for themselves. Remember Jesus' disciple whom he called um, earlier on in the book of Mark, the disciple of Matthew, who had been known as Levi. He had been a tax collector. But the hatred of paying taxes to Rome was even deeper than the taxes themselves. It was deeper than what it just cost them. Jews were forbidden to make carved images. But the denarius that they had to pay in a poll tax, it had embossed upon it the image of the emperor Tiberius. And not only was his image embossed on it, around his head in Latin were the words Augustus Tiberius, son of the the divine. On the other side of the coin was written high priest, son of God. You can perceive with their laws about graven images and all these different things You can and per- blasphemy, you can perceive how offensive these little coins would be to the Jews. Some Jews were so revolted by the denarius they wouldn't even look at one, let alone hold one. So then, how ironic is this situation? Here stands Jesus Christ. He's God's great high priest. He's the king of kings. He's the real Son of God, he's in the temple, this temple that was ruled by Jewish chief priests, and he's being asked a question about paying taxes. So what was Jesus to say in answer to this impossible question? If Jesus said, sure, pay your taxes to Rome, then his influence with the people would have been destroyed. He would have been regarded as a traitor and a coward. But if he said, hey, don't pay the poll tax to the Romans, then they would have arrested him then he'd be guilty of some kind of insurrection. So let's look at his answer. Let's look at his answer there. Verse 15, OB. His answer starts with asking for one of these coins for a denarius. And it's interesting that they brought him one. Jesus didn't have one. Jesus, the the Lord of glory, didn't have a day's wage to his name, but he knew they did. He knew they did, and so what's he pointing out? He's revealing their hypocrisy. He's saying, you hate this tax, but you use this money. You have some. I know you do. You all enjoy the things the empire can afford you. The empire builds roads and aqueducts and provides security and keeps the peace and increases commerce. You have the denarius, which means you participate in the civil life of Rome. Rome. Therefore, your civil obligation is to pay the tax, to render back to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar, this denarius. Just as I read in Romans 13, the state is ordained by God. The state brings valuable services to the people of God. And as we share in the benefits of the state, so we also share in the responsibilities of the state. John Stott, <clears throat> Stott died a few years ago, but he was an evangelical scholar part excellence, and he says this about politics, gives us a, a concise definition of politics and our interaction with it. He says, "...the broader definition of politics refers to the life of the polis, the city, and the art of living together in community. In this sense, all of us are involved in politics since Jesus calls all of us to live in society." Albert Moeller, president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, says, Love of God leads us to love our neighbor. And love of neighbor requires our participation in the culture and in the political process. Even as we know that our ultimate citizenship is in heaven, and even as we set our sights on the glory of the city of God, we must work for good, for justice, and righteousness in the city of man. Can't get out of this. But the question that comes invariably is, what about paying taxes to a government that has set itself up against God? Is it right to pay your good, hard-earned money to a government that wastes it or puts it to work in areas that you adamantly oppose? And you hear that kind of questioning a lot, especially if you're on Facebook. Uh, it seems, that seems to come up quite a bit. And we complain about it, but Think about Christians in Iran, or Libya, or China. Think about how they're processing this question. And think about Jesus' answer. Jesus says, pay your taxes. He calls us to give to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. Contrary to many views of Jesus, he is not just another freedom fighter from Galilee, He's not trying to lead a revolution to free Israel from Rome. No, he's fully submissive to Rome's right to rule and to their right to collect taxes. But notice, there's a limit as to what belongs to Caesar. Our ultimate allegiance is not to the state. It's to God. Caesar may own our money, but God owns us. And that's really the issue here. The issue in Jesus' answer is not taxes. The issue is to give God what you owe God. What do you owe God? I'll tell you what you owe God. You owe him the same thing those Pharisees owed him. You don't owe him hypocrisy. You don't owe him phony religion. What do you owe God? To love his son and to honor his son. And believe in his son and embrace his son as your only hope and your only savior. The very son that God put on the cross to bear the punishment for your sins. To trust your life unto the son. That's what you owe God. The Pharisees were being forced to give their money to Rome and they hated it. But not even Jesus could make them want to give what they owed God, their own souls the coin belongs to Caesar, he says. But you, you belong to God. The coin has Caesar's image. You bear God's image. Give the coin to Caesar. Give your lives over to God. So, with that incredibly wise and savvy answer, the trap collapses. In the end of verse 17, it says, And they marveled at him. Luke says they were silent. Matthew says they marvelled and withdrew. But there's a little bit more to this story. There's a continuation to this story if you look at Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23 verse 1. And in this case, it's not just the Pharisees and the Herodians, it's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, it's the scribes, it's everybody, it's the whole Sanhedrin. And they come and they're coming before the Roman authority. In verse one, it says, "Then the whole body, this whole group of 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 religious leadership in Israel, they got up and they brought him before Pilate. Him being Jesus, they brought him to Pilate. They began to accuse him and listen to what they said. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. It's an outright lie." If flattery doesn't work, then they lie. They had to turn him into a threat to Rome, so they lied. That's what hatred does. That's the kind of hypocrisy these men have. That's the wickedness that's in their heart. That's their utter resolution to destroy Jesus, to destroy the son of the landowner, so they can take the inheritance for themselves. How do you serve the state? You fulfill your civil obligations, and you seek to better the overall welfare of the state. That's how you serve the state. How do you serve the Lord? You serve the Lord by faithfully serving the state. But when that service requires you to violate your love for Christ, you refuse to serve the state, and you brace for the consequences. That's something we need wisdom and grace for in the days ahead. There's a lot to a sermon like this. There's a lot to thinking this through. And I pray that God would give us uh, wisdom as we navigate that thinking. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we all can see how the issues in a passage like this come to bear in our lives practically. So we thank you for the practical application of the teaching of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that uh, if there's anyone here that... doesn't know you, that has maybe failed to see the image of you on their life, therefore has failed to give their life over to you. Lord, I pray that in this text they would see that clear truth that Jesus lays down, that we have civil obligations because of our participation in civil life, but we have a creator obligation because you've put breath into our very souls. Lord, thank you for the testimonies that were shared today. Thank you for the spirit in which they were given, and just so encouraging to hear about how you have worked in the lives of the people among us. Strengthen us today because of the words shared from your word and from the hearts of those who love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.